Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These. At first, listen, you may not think a book about America's true crime obsession is a good fit for this show, which is often about racial justice and equity and trying to do the right thing and doing the right thing for yourself and, and other concerns that are that are somewhat at least political. What does Dateline have to do with racial justice? How are the Manson murders related to immigration policy? Why would entertaining ourselves with my favorite murder contribute to the worst parts of the Trump era? My friends, all of those questions will be answered. My guest this week is Rachel Monroe. She's a contributing writer at The Atlantic and the author of Savage Appetites, four true stories of women, crime, and obsession. It's a book about true crime, and it's a book about the people who consume true crime. It's about white women as perfect victims and mass incarceration and what counts as violence in America. Coming right up, Rachel Monroe. Rachel, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I am excited to talk about your book. It, it hit all of the things in me. Um, all of the both pleasure areas and um, self-conscious areas, I guess. Those can be the same thing sometimes. Um, I think I'm glad to hear that. Yes. I think, are you, yeah, no, that's that's a good response to a book. I think if someone told me that's how they responded to something I wrote, I would be, I'd be happy. Uh, and, and let's share a little bit of what you wrote. I understand you brought an excerpt for us. Would you like to read it, please? Sure. Yeah, this is from the, the introduction of the book. For most of my post-adolescent life, I've periodically sunk into what I've come to think of as a crime funk. I was the kind of gloomy child who filched her mother's People magazines to read not about the celebrities, but about the killers and kidnappers and suspicious overdoses. As I got older, my appetite for murder stories seemed to depend on how much turbulence was in my own life. The more sad or lost or angry I felt, the more I craved crime. I was a teenager storming with hormones when I pulled Helter Skelter off my parents' shelf and gave myself Manson family nightmares, and a little older and a lot more depressed when I set out to read every single Manson girl memoir. When I learned that the Columbine Killers' journals were online, I read those too. I want to talk more about Columbine in a bit because you have some reporting about about that that's super disturbing. Not the, not the event itself, let's say, but... Um, uh, the fandom that surrounds it. But I wanted to start sort of with your description of, of what you were like growing up. I have some of the same kinds of stories to tell. I was always interested in murder and crime. Um, my mom used to tell me versions of Shakespeare plays as bedtime stories. And you know what my favorite was? <laughs> Macbeth, because the ghosts yeah, and witches and whatnot. Yeah. And it's funny, I sort of feel about that the same way I feel about um, science fiction, which is also something I loved growing up, which is that, oh, everybody loves it now. Like, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's become its own thing that I have to share with other people. And definitely, like, crime has emerged as that niche, too. I mean, it's always been there, but but you, in the introduction of the book, in addition to talking about your own history with it, you go to a crime conference. So is true crime having a moment, Rachel? It certainly seems that way. People talk a lot about the true crime boom, and and you're right that it has been. As, as long as mass media has existed, people have been drawn to crime stories. Um, there's, there's drama there. Um, but I do think that there is something different happening now. I mean, with the internet, you have the ability to um, create communities around these stories. And I think that's where both some of the the um, possibilities for, I don't know, like exciting things like uh, solving cold cases or advocating for justice happens, but also some of the more, uh, like, Things that make me uneasy uh, happen when uh, when you have essentially a, f- a fandom arising around um, stories of crime and murder. And and this book is mainly about the parts that disturb you, if I can generalize, <laughs> right? Not not getting too I much guess, away. Uh, yeah, I mean, I I guess if I have been drawn to dark stories, which 
I have from a really early age, similar to you, it sounds like, then, um, and if I'm going to be writing about the phenomenon of, of interest in crime stories, I guess it makes sense that I would be drawn to the dark side of that subject, too. So, yeah. The structure of the book is is really interesting. You do a series of profiles of women whose lives have been upended in some way by crime or shaped or formed by a crime or crimes. And you sort of use these women to explore that this general phenomenon. And I want to get to the specific women, but I think I think I first want to kind of talk about the theme, which is I when I was asked, like, what is that book about, right? Oh, it's about women's mm-hmm. interest in true crime. And then I realized, like, every single one of those words, women's interest in true crime, kind of is complicated by the book you wrote. And to begin with, women. As you point out a few times, we're not just talking about women in general. We're talking about white women for the most part. Yeah, I mean, and not all the four women that I write about are white, but it does as a phenomenon, like attending CrimeCon, which is the the crime fan convention that you were mentioning earlier, it was a notably female audience and also a notably white audience. And, um, I, I, you know, I don't want to exclude anybody from the conversation because I do know that there are, and I've spoken with people who are not white, who are who are interested in these things. But um, certainly the uh, subjects, the, the people who become subjects of these true crime stories are often white women. And, and maybe that's, it's a, it's a circular system here where then the, the white women are consuming stories of, of imperiled white women, for sure. And then there's the true crime part of the sentence. And it's interesting to me, all of the stories that you tell, um, even though they're true, they're true stories, the crimes in them have a, a mythical or fantastical element to them in the way that they're thought about in our culture. Maybe this is a good time to go through the individual stories. Sure. Yeah, they do. I did. I did end up feeling like, in some ways, true crime is uh, they're like the the fables or the fairy tales of our time. They're a way that we use these larger than life stories that that are become part of the cultural imagination to work through the maybe smaller dramas or tragedies uh, in our own lives, for sure. Yeah, but what distinguishes these stories? It's funny. So, like, what I I think is interesting. We say true crime, but what makes these stories so fascinating is actually not, I mean, we can be titillated by the amount of truth in them, like it could happen, but it's the mythic quality that really connects, I think. Uh, and like I said, I think maybe yeah. this is a good time to go into the, the the four women that you profile, beginning with the woman whose crimes were all fictional, whose, who the crimes in her life were almost all fictional. Yeah, Frances Glessner Lee. She, well, she, so she built these, she's most famous for building these little, uh, she didn't like when people called them dollhouses, but it's hard not to call them dollhouses because they're little houses with dolls in them. Um, but they were all uh, composite cases, so they were they were fictionalized crime scenes, but they were based on real crime scenes that she had she had witnessed. She loved driving around with police officers and was friends with uh, medical examiners. So she she witnessed, sat in on autopsies, went to crime scenes, discussed uh, murders at length. So. Um, even though they were composites, they were based on on true stories. Yeah, I mean that's but that's sort of to me that's like representative of the whole genre, right? Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, they're based on truth, but then we make up stories about them, and that she just did it more overtly than most people. Um, and she's an interest. So she's she's she stands out because her life wasn't directly impacted by a crime, right? Like she was a wealthy woman who for some reason, was the same as us. You know, she was attracted to this dark interest. And it, and you tell her story, and I don't, you know, spoiler alert, but one of the interesting things to me about that story is that you kind of say maybe there's no dark secret here for her. Like, maybe there's no thing that happened to her that made her have this interest. And maybe that's, that's just okay. Right, well... 
Because I found myself asking exactly that question, like, okay, well, you have this woman who, as far as we can tell, had uh, in many ways a very privileged upbringing. She was born in the 19th century, lived on the the wealthiest block in Chicago. Her house is now a museum. You can pay thousands of dollars to get married there. It's very beautiful. Um, and she, by all accounts, had a, a fairly good relationship with her parents. Um, there's no obvious sign of public trauma in her life. And yet she um, was so drawn to death in these stories of death and um, subscribed to coroner's journals and um, learned everything she can about putrefaction and um, just wanted to know as much as she could about dead bodies. And so it's hard. I found myself uh wanting there to be some some origin story there like what she must have been working through some great tragedy in her own life um why else would she be drawn to these things but uh it seems like that's that was me maybe <laughs> impo- asking for a fictional maybe a more fictional version of her life one that made made sense according to those tv tropes that that we get drilled into us if you if you watch if you watch police procedurals you know there's always some originary trauma but maybe just like being in the world is is traumatic enough i i liked i i like that hypothesis to be honest um and i think it's an interesting story to start out with because i think it kind of gives a little bit of a warning about the f- stories that follow about being careful about assuming you know that there's like some like seminal moment in these people's lives, like a scar that didn't heal. I mean, there are things that happen to them, but we can only know what we know. And to make up a story for them perhaps isn't fair. Yeah. And I think there's also a danger in making crime stories, reducing them um, to being only about psychology, individual psychology, you know, Um and because I think that removes a lot of the the political and the social from these stories. And, and that's where I sometimes get frustrated with certain aspects of the true crime genre when they start to seem just like a psychodrama and they're leaving out any question of, you know, race or class or gender, which um, certainly inflects our lived experience of the world, um, but often gets left out of these stories. So. Yeah, that's another way that the the name or for the genre true crime doesn't quite work uh, because it doesn't actually reflect the truth about crime in America, at least. Like the stories that we tell about true crime are not representative of violence that happens every day. You point that out a few times. I think it's really important that although the stories that we watch on Dateline, I confess, total Dateline addict, which I consider to be like the light <laughs> beer of true crime, by the way, like it's <laughs> it tastes like nothing um and it's just incredibly like predictable um but i do watch a lot of dateline uh and those stories and the stories on my favorite murder the stories on id all those things that do focus on white women do not in any way represent the truth about crime in america and even just the prevalence of these stories is really interesting that that gives us a, a narrative that is uh, pretty distorted just in that we are in this period of true crime boom, of a true crime boom, but um, the violent crime rate in this country is is basically as low as it has ever been since since people have started keeping records. And so for some reason during this period when, when violent crime is um, has been trending lower and lower and lower, uh, the appetite for these stories of violent crime is greater and greater and greater. And the victims in real life are different than the white women we watch stories about. I mean, you you point out several times that most victims of crime in America are people of color. Yeah, and particularly young men. I mean, that's the other interesting thing that uh, people feel really shocked if you tell them uh, that the majority of murder victims um, are men. Um, I think the statistic is something like in the U.S., uh, the percentage of of murders that are a man murdering a woman is 25%. And that, but the uh, stories of murder that we see and read and, and listen to are so often follow that template. And um, I think that, at least for me, that certainly got in my head in an interesting way. Um, there's like both a, there's both a privilege and a burden to have your 
your vulnerability uh, highlighted and emphasized to you over and over again, I think. I think that gives us a beautiful segue to the second story in your book about that has a lot to do with the useful victim, the victims we choose to focus on. Yeah. So in the in the second section, the victim, um, I write about the aftermath of uh, the death of Sharon Tate, um, who, of course, was killed by the the Manson family um, 50 years ago. Uh, and and that's obviously a crime that had such huge cultural impact, but it also had a, a real political impact that I think has been underappreciated Um and and I tend to I, I tend to prefer to write about the aftermath of these famous crimes um, rather than than trying to go in and, and rehash what happened again. Um, it's like, well, what impact did it have afterwards? And and I became really interested and fascinated by Sharon Tate's family, um, who were so deeply damaged by this crime, but then also by all the the attention and the fame that came afterwards. Um, and in particular, I was very interested in Sharon Tate's mother, Doris, who, uh, after a period of, of like deep depression, became an activist, as we see a lot of, um, particularly the mothers of, of people who have been murdered, uh, tend to take this political role. Um, and she drove what was known in the what emerged in the 80s and the 90s is the victims' rights movement, which is where we get a lot of the tough-on-crime policies that that led to mass incarceration today. Um, and and she was, in some ways, a really ideal spokeswoman um, because she had this this daughter who was beautiful and blonde and eight months pregnant when she was murdered. I mean, it's like just the archetypal victim yeah. in a way. I mean, I couldn't think if you were... To create out of thin air a victim that would be most likely to cause America to you know, convulse over fear of violent crime and to want to take vengeance on the perpetrators, it would be a beautiful, blonde, white, pregnant woman. <laughs> right. Like she just represents the kind of feminine presence that we tend to again like i can't we can't speak for everyone but our culture tends to center that as like the most important kind of female you know yeah and it's really bitter bittersweet maybe not the right word but it's um complicated to read that section about victims rights movement because you point out that to some degree it you know it did a lot of good um you know, the voices of women were uplifted, right? That's great. Sure. <laughs> there was a real there was a real lack in the criminal justice system, a real gap. I mean, it's it's very interesting to think about before before Sharon Tate's mother's activism and, and many other activists. She certainly wasn't working alone. Um, there wasn't particularly a role for victims in the criminal justice system. Um, we're all now pretty used to the idea of the victim impact statement. Um, there was like all those, like the hundred plus ones that were said after Larry Nasser, the gymnastics mm-hmm. uh, doctor, was uh, sentenced and, and you heard hundreds of women coming up and, and saying what happened to them. And, and that wouldn't have been possible 30 years ago because there was just no, the victim impact statement wasn't a part of the court proceedings. So there was just no no place for the victim to say, you know, this is this is what happened to me. And um, and so in some ways, the victims rights movement arose out of that um, arose out, out of that absence and also out of, you know, police who had very little training in mm-hmm. how to respond to victims of violence or sexual assault. Um, there was a real need there, but then it and then it gets kind of co-opted or bent to these um, other political ends, um, which is a real shame. Yeah, and spoiler alert, it, it you know it comes out on the bad side for people of color and poor people and all the other people that we tend to not center. Uh, because, and, and this didn't have to happen, I don't think, but you tell the story very clearly about how the elevation of a certain kind of victim in this victim rights movement uh, wound up turning 
uh, what had been a, a little bit of a social movement to allow perpetrators to be human. To the victims' rights movement became a, made it binary again. That yeah, we had a, we had a good and pure and perfect victim, and then evil on the other side. Right, which it doesn't. It's yeah. It, just like you're saying, it didn't have to happen. There's no, there's not any necessary reason that giving rights to defendants, things like the Miranda rights, um, you know, or the 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 fact that we have now that uh, the Supreme Court ruling that you can't like an illegal search, you can't be admitted as evidence. Like those are not taking anything away from victims, giving rights to defendants, but the victims' rights movement painted it as such and made it this zero-sum game. So if you were if you were giving any rights to criminal defendants, um, that that was a wound to victims, as if as if this was a zero-sum game and as if those categories don't actually often like really overlap. And um and it really does do a disservice to victims too, that that painting of victims. You hear in the Reagan era in particular this rhetoric over and over again of the innocent victim, the innocent victim, um, which is never quite explicitly defined, but um, becomes really rhetorically powerful and, and comes to mean a very, very narrow set of victims fit into that category of who gets who gets uh, seen as as innocent. Yeah. It made me think of um, we're doing some reporting for a future episode about a rape crisis center that uh, mm. the revelation that, that their innovation, which shouldn't be so rare, but is, is they're completely independent from the hospital and justice system. So mm. they, everyone that comes there, you don't have to be involved with the criminal justice system at all if you don't want to be. And so mm. they see people who normally wouldn't necessarily report, right? Because they're not right. perfect victims, even though they've undergone a horrible crime. They are, uh, they, they're undocumented. They were doing drugs at the time. Um, they have some other criminal offense. Like, those people need the, <laughs> and like you said, like the category of victim and perpetrators, those just don't, aren't, they're, they're not static. In the same time, like, even people who, I have a feeling you've probably read Sarah Marshall's piece on um, Ted Bundy. Oh, yes, of course. I love that piece. <laughs> For people who don't know, it's like a, like, I don't know, 80,000 words. I don't know. It's, it's long. It's a, it's a long read. Um, I think I printed it out to read again for this episode, and it's 26 pages, so it's long. Uh, and it's a great—it dovetails so well with your book because it talks about how even Ted Bundy, evil, right? Evil incarnate. The name of the, of the piece is uh, The End of Evil. Like, we're being a little bit lazy if we just— like intellectually, emotionally, spiritually, psychically, culturally, if we just say like, oh, evil, you know? Well, I think also because it lets us off the hook, right? If mm -hmm. you have a category of people who you dismiss as monsters um, and as maybe innate monsters in some way, then we don't have any responsibility as a society to look at what uh, what facilitates people, you know, people who exist in environments of like deprivation and violence and desperation, that is a that is an atmosphere that can easily foster violence, you know, but if we make these people just like innately monsters, then we don't have any responsibility to to kind of mitigate some of that desperation. I have a few different thoughts. Um, one is that this particular discussion reminds me that there's kind of the ghost of Trump in your book. He sort of haunts the margins. And I think of him when we talk about Ted Bundy, not for maybe the super obvious reasons, <laughs> having to do with violence against women, but more about how much responsibility can we take as a culture for the bad things that happen, you know? Mm. Like, I do think there's a tendency on the part of white liberals to be like, Trump is an aberration. Trump is is the bad orange man, and he came out of nowhere. He came out of somewhere, right? And to 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 think of him as an aberration or as evil or as like a totally standalone crazy person, we're not sufficiently interrogating our own history and culture. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's really the case. And it's, I mean, I think that the 
I had, through writing this book, I came to really, well, I really sort of ruined uh, shows like Dateline and, and things <laughs> yeah. like that for myself because uh, because they do have this, that formula that you're talking about, and they do have this way of being soothing which is funny for stories about violent crime, but they, you kind of know the beats they're going to hit and the the shape that the story is going to take and the emotional journey it's going to take you on, and um, and it is ultimately reassuring. I mean, that's why they're so popular, and uh, I really did come by the end of this book to not to not want to be reassured anymore in exactly that way. Yeah. I confess that, so I had same, you know, um, kind of media diet for me in, in a lot of ways in the comfort of, of crime stories. Uh, I, the most depressed I've ever been in my life, like Law and Order is the thing that I watch because, you know, yeah. like the dun dun is like a heartbeat, you know, <laughs> it's like. It really is. Like, it I'm really still, is, actually. I'm still here. Dun dun. <laughs> yeah. And when I finished your book, I was like, I'm going to watch The Great British Bake Off. <laughs> like, <laughs> anything in my comfort viewing tonight will not be Dateline. I want to get to the other um, women in your book. And I also want to talk a little bit more about Trump. But before we leave the Manson chapter, I'm really proud of us for there's a I don't want There's a spoiler I will not I will not give. But people should read that Manson chapter. There's. Another story there that I had no idea was a backstory in the Manson family, you know, myth or legend or whatever it is. And um, people, I mean, it was super interesting. And we'll just like let that be a tease for everyone. Great. (laughs) It's already fascinating in and of itself, right? Like I had no idea about the Doris um, Tate story, but there's another thread. And we'll, we'll let people discover that for themselves. And let's take a short break. It's halfway through the book, um, halfway through the show. Be right back. Describe your style in one word. It's not a test, but I think it's a good exercise. Uh, The suggestions I have here are simple, sophisticated, adventurous. I used to describe myself as preppy punk. Now I might do with mature bohemian, perhaps. Um, mature is probably in there somewhere. Uh, and it's been a transition for me uh, to not dress like a 21-year-old, actually. Um, I did that for, for probably too long. And, and that is one of the reasons that I love Stitch Fix. If you are having trouble articulating your personal style or you have a feeling that you should be exploring some other kind of way of expressing yourself, if maybe, like for me, the mini skirts just weren't working anymore, um, and the uh, midriff, I, there's no midriff in my future. I need things that cover the midriff. Uh, I, so Stitch Fix has been perfect. Um, they somehow get that vibe that I'm looking for. Um, a hip mother, perhaps, although I'm not a mom, hip person who could be a mom. Uh, in any case, I do happen to be wearing a Stitch Fix outfit today because they're on target. Um, it is uh, Spanx leggings, which hold in all the goods, uh, and a really cool T-shirt that looks as though I bought it at a real Grateful Dead concert. But honestly, I, I've never been to one, but it's a cool shirt. And it, you know, it, it's uh, it's long enough to cover what needs to be covered, but it's not like super loose and baggy. So I am not trying to like... The parts that need to be covered are covered, and the parts that don't need to be covered aren't covered. It's kind of, it's good. And also, Karen here, who's uh, recording me, engineering me right now, asked me where I got these pants. So you will like Stitch Fix, I promise, even if my style is not your style, because they are good at figuring out what your style is, even if you don't know. Get started today at stitchfix.com slash friends, and you will get an extra 25% off when you keep everything in your box. That's stitchfix.com slash friends, stitchfix.com slash friends. So Third Love is my next sponsor I'm supposed to tell you about here, and they have great copy that I'm going to read. But first, I want to tell you that uh, somebody tweeted recently, um, a person who uh, probably identified as a male person tweeted about how much he liked the Third Love ads because he's an engineer. And he'd never really thought about bras before, but the way that I talk about Third Love bras and the way that they talk about themselves and the approach they use for fitting people, he said, as an engineer, it makes total sense to him. And he's sort of baffled that not all bra companies work this way. And it is true. What Third Love does best 
is approach your girls as an engineering project. They deserve the attention that a bridge would get. They deserve the support that a bridge would get. And that bra needs to be designed just as carefully. They offer over 70 sizes, including their signature half cup size. So you don't have to go to a store and undress in a dressing room and have a stranger handle your goods. Skip that trip, find your fit with Third Love's online fit finder, order, and then you try it on at home. There is no more awkward experience, uh, no more guessing. Just answer a few simple questions and you will find your perfect fit in 30 seconds. Over 12 million women have taken the quiz to date. It's actually fun, and I know that sounds hard to believe, but it is, and it only takes a minute to complete. Brush shape matters, for instance. You're going to have to talk about your brush shape. I now know what my brush shape is. And if you don't actually fit into it the way you want, you have 60 days to wear it, wash it, put it to the test. And if you don't love it, return it. And Third Love will wash it and donate it to a woman in need. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone. So right now they're offering my listeners 15% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com friends to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com friends. And we're back. And I didn't mean for this to be like a book report, but it's such a great structure. (laughs) And I feel like we're hitting a lot of the ground I wanted to hit just by kind of like talking about each of these individual women who also I wanted to make sure that we heard their names. We heard who they are. The third chapter, right? I guess technically maybe it's the fourth since there's an intro, right? But um, it's from a story that we might be familiar with. Again, those of us that consume this stuff on a regular basis Uh, But do you want to tell us a little bit about this woman who is the, how, what archetype does she, she take here? The lawyer, that's right. The lawyer, the defender. Um, Yeah, Lori Davis is her name. And um, she's a real, I came to really admire her a lot through the course of this reporting. Um, And she was in the 1990s. She was living in New York City, working as a landscape architect. She had she had a cute little Brooklyn apartment. Her best friend lived upstairs, like r- perfect Brooklyn life. And uh, she saw this documentary, which um, later aired on HBO, called Paradise Lost, which was the first documentary about the what we now know as the West Memphis Three. So that's this terrible. A murder case that happened in Arkansas where three young boys were killed and three teenagers from this town, um, kind of like the goth weirdos from town, were uh, were arrested and, and ultimately convicted based on uh, mostly moral panic and, and very little evidence. And she watched this documentary and uh, became entranced with with one of these young men, started writing him letters, and and they had this very uh, kind of old-fashioned love affair that that began through writing letters. Something about it felt like, I don't know, you know, like like a romance between a ship captain and a woman waiting at home or something. <laughs> this, that like distance and longing and their inability to be together and all the obstacles. Um, so in some ways it was very romantic. In other ways it was obviously very tragic because he was on death row for a crime that he didn't commit. Um, and and some of those early letters are, are heartbreaking too because um, they're saying things like, oh yeah, I, I really, I did the, the numerological analysis and you're going to be out in, in two years. And um, the dramatic irony, I guess, reading those letters is knowing that it took almost two decades uh, for them to get out of prison and and due to a lot of work on Lori's part that that part of the story is not very well known um mostly because she's an incredibly modest person and and doesn't really feel like uh it's her story but but looking back at that case it never would have gained the prominence um or the or the successful result without her stepping in and doing a ton of kind of extra legal work on on uh, her husband's behalf. So to me, this is the chapter that's kind of um, at least comparatively happy, right? <laughs> got to have some lightness in there. You know, he, he does get out and, and they are together. Um, but I wonder, the, and the, the darkness there is mainly about, I feel like, the searching for the right perpetrator almost, right? Yeah, because the other fascinating thing about this case is uh, it's like a confluence of so many things. It was, it was as far as we can tell, the first 
the first big true crime story to have a dedicated website. And um, this began also around 1999 uh, when a lot of it started on Usenet, um, oh, like, yeah. as a, like a listserv. I mean, this is, you know, like early public Internet stuff. And um and and this community who also who who related to these young men who'd been convicted for being for listening to Metallica and, and wearing black, uh, a lot of people related to that, and then went on this website and and there was a message board and they started letter writing campaigns and it drew people from all over the country. So it's it's the, a very early example of what we now see a ton of all over the internet. These communities that spring up around certain cases. Um, and yeah, there's like a really sad irony there because a, a ton of great work was done by the these by this community, um, but at the same time, they were very they were very quick to want to solve the crime. And I think you see this online now too with um, other kind of cold case speculations where. Um, People consider themselves detectives. They look at the case and, and they feel like from their feelings and their own theories, they, they know who the culprit was. And, and while the, the police and the community in, in Arkansas has see, had seized on these, these goth boys um, as you know, what a murderer looks like, uh, a lot of people in this community focused on one of the boys' fathers who who to maybe people, you know, living in California, living in New York, might have looked like what a what a murderer could be. He he wears, you know, overalls a hillbilly. A shirt. He's like a total hillbilly. If you've watched these movies, he's in these documentaries about the case. He's he's so bombastic. He's He's talking about hell all the right. time. He's, uh, you know, it, it's... it's He's a caricature. And I have to say, so I, I love Stephen yeah. King, but he totally would be a villain in a Stephen King book. <laughs> he really is. Yes, exactly. He's just got this kind of hellfire and brimstone language and... And there's something really, uh, and he's like six feet tall with this long, scraggly hair. Um, and so a lot of people seized on him and were like, no, our guys aren't the murderer. This guy is. Um, and and in many ways, it really dogged his life for a long time. And um, and he did have things in his bout. He had drug convictions. He had domestic violence convictions, all the stuff that came out. Um, and that can come out when a case becomes really famous. Uh, people sort of feel entitled to know everything about anybody who is in proximity to it in any way and, and to build a theory on that. And um, and then when the DNA evidence did come back, it it excluded him as well. And um, and and that relationship has been repaired that um the exonerated young men, well, I guess they're not technically exonerated, oh, yes. but the West Memphis Three and him, uh, they have a, re- a relationship now. They've all kind of banded together. But um, it is that example of how the vigilantism, I think, is a danger of um, when people are feel like activists or crusaders or something. It's, yeah. it's a quick step over the line. It's not just like the backwards village people that, you know, with their pitchforks, right? That, that yeah. can create a mob and, and go after an innocent person. Like, it can yeah. be the people in Brooklyn who listen to podcasts as well. Like Exactly. <laughs> and, and, it, and there's such a desire for an answer and for closure and to have it wrapped up. And it's, I mean, I, one of the horrifying things about that What's Memphis 3 case is that still nobody's been arrested for those crimes. And so you, you have to think, like, somebody did that and, and they've, at this point, not been brought to justice, and and there is that strong desire to to know, um, and it's so hard to sit with that uncertainty. So, from the most relatively light chapter, I think we have to delve into what was, I think, one of the most disturbing stories I've read in a long time. Just, I mean, I guess that's a compliment. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> And I get. I'll let you. Uh, we said we were going to say more about Columbine. Um, yeah. Tell us about about the woman you focused on for this last chapter. Her name is Lindsay Suvanarath, and she was um, she was like an alienated young person, like so many of these people we're hearing about uh, recently, uh, living with her parents. Graduated from college, didn't didn't have a job, didn't have many friends in real life. Um, most of her social life happened online. She just spent hours and hours online, um, and she 
became drawn into this online community uh, that centered around Columbine and the school shootings at Columbine. And this was a this was a this story <laughs> gave me a lot of feelings and a lot of <laughs> thoughts too. Yeah. Because I had written about the Columbiners, which is one strain of this fandom, essentially, um, back, I think, in 2012. And when I had written about them back then, it was this community on Tumblr, and it was mostly girls, often very young girls, like teen, teen, tween girls, um, using the the language of fandom and, and crushes to talk about the Columbine killers. And... Um, and they'd been written about a little bit, but most people had been just kind of shocked and outraged and, and kind of left it there. And I was like, well, you know, I guess it, there was a part of me that could imagine maybe if if I had been born 10 years earlier, like, it wasn't completely foreign to me to imagine that I could have been one of these girls. So I didn't want to just... 10 years later. Oh, yeah. <laughs> 10 years later. Right. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Math is tough. Yes. Um, yes. I didn't want to. I didn't want to just dismiss them out of hand. You know, I, it's like people are so quick to talk about teen girls as if they're both like stupid and frightening at the same time. And and I didn't want to fall into that trap. So I I spent a lot of time thinking about what why girls would would be saying these expressing these romantic feelings about the the Columbine. And to be shooters. totally, I just I want to be clear about what we're talking about because I had not heard of it before. And it is like imagine, you know, a one direction fandom and it's around the the two Columbine killers. And it's what's different about it, I feel like, is that it has that ironic detachment that also now I think we've come to associate it with the alt-right in a way. Like, yeah. aren't you outraged by the fact that I, I'm doing this is is a little bit of a tone. It seems like that's part of the tone. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Like, they know what they're doing. Teenage girls are so savvy about representation and how people are going to see them. So when they put sparkly hearts over a school shooter, they know how that's going to be received. Yeah. They're trying to make you freak out. And so, and and I think back in 2012, I, I felt, um, I don't know, I guess some sympathy for them, or I felt like this was a way they were using this huge cultural touchstone of Columbine as a way to talk about their own depression. I mean, a lot of them had been born after Columbine had happened, or maybe they were toddlers when it happened. So in a way, it, it was like a myth or a fairy tale to them. And, and maybe they couldn't, they didn't feel comfortable talking about their own rage or their own depression or their own bullying, but they could, they could talk about these boys as a, I think so many teenage crushes have that shape. You know, you're deflecting. You 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 can't quite own your own feelings. So you you have a crush on a guy who's a rock star. You can't, you know, say that you want to play the guitar. But then a number of years later, when I learned about this woman, Lindsay, who fell into this fandom or was drawn in or however you want to say it, and and who ended up planning a mass shooting of her own and who also was... Um, a self-described Nazi uh, and was in that online world as well. It was harder for me, I think, to separate out or to have that distance, I guess, that that the irony asks you to have um, and that and that line between, okay, well, what is joking play irony that happens online and what is real? Um, I don't know, I had to reevaluate some of my own thoughts. Whether it's a job interview or your dating profile, your smile can help you make the best first impression. But if your smile isn't as vibrant as you'd like it to be, ARC can help you feel more confident or at least help your smile. ARC is a new way to achieve professional-level teeth whitening at home for just 30 minutes a day. Each ARC treatment includes dentist-approved enamel-safe whitening strips that adhere to your upper and lower teeth 
along with ARC blue light technology. The blue light mouthpiece arcs around your entire smile, delivering targeted blue light energy to help weaken set-in stains below the enamel surface, making your treatment more effective than strips alone. ARC can help you reveal a smile that's 50 times wider than a leading lightning toothpaste, and they offer guaranteed satisfaction. To help our listeners get whiter, brighter smiles, ARC is offering $15 off your first purchase of a blue light kit when you visit arcsmile.com and use promo code FRIENDS. Go to ARC, A-R-C, smile.com. Use promo code FRIENDS for $15 off your blue light whitening kit. That's arcsmile.com, promo code FRIENDS. I won't assume that you follow me on social media, but you might follow me on social media. And if you follow me on social media, Instagram or Twitter, you probably know I have a dog and he is wonderful. His name is Exley. I can talk about him all day long. I also have two cats. They're cats. And so they tend just, they're just not as public in their affection. They Their personalities, while big in their own way, are kind of self-contained. Cats don't need us. And so I think sometimes they're just happy to like go off and do their own thing. Although in a weird way, I think Exley arriving in the house has made them both more conscious of their need to step up their game, let's say. In any case, I do this entire intro because it is true that Luke and Leia, the Jedi twins, have not gotten as much exercise, maybe, as they used to. We don't play with them as much because, you know, there's Exley. They're playing all the time. And uh, the vet did tell us that uh, Luke and Leia have reached middle age. They have a little paunch, um, which we find adorable. Chonky kitties are adorable. But any vet will tell you it's not ideal. Which is why I am delighted to have the Petronics Mouser now. It is an entirely, like, over-the-top cat toy. Like, if you're a person who's a cat person, I consider myself bipetual, by the way. I like cats and dogs. But if you are a dog person, there's all kinds of, like, stuff catering to you. There are fewer fewer companies innovating for cats, I feel like. But Mouser does it. It is an automated uh, artificial intelligence mouse and um, the main thing about it is, it, you know, it rolls around, it directs itself. Think of it as like the technology of a Roomba and a little electronic mouse. And it has like a tail that has like a feather on it. And of course, that's and it wags around. And I can say the cats are getting their exercise. Like, I can't tell you that there's been a huge turnaround in their chunkiness. But they do love the mouse or they love it so much they actually have destroyed two tails already. Fortunately, I got extra tails, but they have gone nuts for it. Um, They are engaged in a way that they haven't really been since kittens. I am really happy to have this ridiculous over-the-top toy. Mouser, it is called. And my listeners, if you are interested in a mouser, you can get 20% off by visiting petronics.io slash friends using the code friends at Check out that is Petronics, P-E-T-R-O-N-I-C-S dot I-O slash friends with checkout code friends and save 20% because your cat is worth it. This brings us back (laughs) to the evil orange man in the White House, I think, because he does kind of haunt the margins of this book, whether or not you intended him to, I feel like. What I kept thinking was, you know, there are no accidents in culture. Like when things emerge in concert, like there's usually some way of looking at them both. And I just kept thinking like this true crime boom, whatever you want to call it, is happening at the same time that we're having a rise in white nationalism, the same time we have this man in the White House. There's something happening here. There's some kind of harmony being sung between these things, I feel like. And the most yeah. specific example, I, I I would actually just ask you to tell us about the time you were driving through Texas and you were listening to Trump's terrifying speech. And I'll have to specify which one because a lot of them are terrifying, but at the RNC. Yeah, it was during the period when I was writing the, the chapter on victims and I was so I was steeping myself in the in the Reagan era victim rhetoric, um, which is where a lot of the the tough on crime laws come out of. Um, and there was so much talk of, of predators then and, and how afraid everyone should be um, and how if you weren't a victim now, you were you were about to be a victim. And then I was driving driving this one night. It's a very long drive from where I live in rural Texas to the airport. I was driving back from the airport and it was so dark. 
And I was just totally alone on the highway. And the radio station was broadcasting the Trump speech from the RNC, and which was so long. Um, <laughs> that was part of the what was difficult. But it was he was it was such familiar rhetoric from from that period in the eighties where um, he was just talking about uh, danger and and fear and how um, how under threat uh, we all are, and people were were cheering. And he was promising, of course, that, you know, if you elected him, all of that would turn around. But but it was just that stoking of, of the idea of um, fear and threat as a source of um, bonding and energy and also like rage directed at an undefined but implicit other. Um, and I could just feel those cultural currents swirling again. Um, and yeah, it was a bad drive. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's, I think, the strongest resonance, you know, is that um, he picks up the the worst, you know, part of what we, I guess, we, I don't know if we can still call victims' rights. Um, victimology, I don't know. Um, you know, like he campaigned with uh, the so-called angel moms. Yeah. Uh, who were which it just seemed pornographic to me, which if you don't remember, they're uh, women who lost a family member to a violent crime committed by an undocumented immigrant. And it just to take these women's pain and just use it to exact a particular political price, not on a particular person, but not as a political price, a human price, right? To to to, yeah. to turn an entire kind of kind of person <laughs> into a monster and and using those victims as a kind of shield too mm-hmm. because you can't what can you say to that mother's pain you can never say that you know we all like stand in in horror of it um, what a what a terrible thing to have to endure and then. Uh, but putting them, standing up and, and having them kind of flanking him or surrounding him as a, to deflect any criticism of, uh, of the really inhumane and totally irrational policies, you know, because it's hard to, stand, to cite statistics, right, in the face of a grieving mother and to say, well, you know, actually people in the country, uh, undocumented people commit crimes at a much lower rate than, mm-hmm. than, you know, natural born citizens. But that's, how do you say that in the face of this uh, yeah. grief? Um, and so it's really, it's like very politically savvy, even as it is uh, really disturbing. And then the other place I feel like the the point counterpoint music happens is this idea that it's the consumption of crime as entertainment and ironic distance. Mm. Because I feel like our can I shouldn't say our. I think a lot of people who are safe in this current moment, whose lives are not currently being, you know, tormented by the things this administration does. Those of us who can mainly walk through a day without thinking about being stopped by a law officer, you know, without thinking about how my children are, or you know, those of us who are basically safe, will still t- say we're um, you know political junkies. And that um, we're obsessed with, you know, politics and that, um, you know, uh, we can we'll make jokes and retweet and whatnot. Um, But we're watching this disaster unfold as theater. Not it's not actually happening to us. And that seems to sort of have a parallel with how people consume true crime. Yeah, I think you have to to be able to consume it as entertainment or as as pleasure. Then um, you have to have a certain distance, right? I mean, if this is your daily life, then it doesn't count as escapism. But I think also at the same time, you have to have a certain um, awareness of your own vulnerability for it to really those stories to get their hooks in you. And so I think it's I, I do think that's why um, white women in particular. are drawn to these stories so much because we do have that dual um, 
privilege of being relatively safe and yet and and heightened awareness of our own vulnerability. And that's that's an uncomfortable middle space to occupy that mm-hmm. both of those things can be true. I can be um, relatively privileged, relatively safe, and yet at the same time, relatively at risk, relatively vulnerable. And I think maybe that describes sort of your average, you know, progressive, liberal, political junkie, white, you know, cis, middle class and above, all those all those centered things. Because it's not like, I mean, my life and I presumably your life um, I, is is impacted by the terrible things that Trump does. I do worry about my country in a very real way. But I don't have to worry on a day-to-day basis. And then that's what allows me, right, to like follow the tweets, yeah. um, which I just don't recommend. God, like... <laughs> But it's a similar, it's a, it's, I, for me at least, it's a similar feeling of compulsion. Yeah. It's like the, the staying up all night, the not being able to turn away, the, it's like, uh, it, it is a funny feeling. And I don't consume, I don't consume celebrity stories that way. I don't consume culture stories that way. It's something about it. It's like recent, recent political news and then also crime stories. In some ways, they feel like they're a, addressing the the f- anxiety and the fear that that I know is out there and maybe assuaging it a little bit but not completely so that's why you keep needing more and more and more um I was I read a really interesting book that's also fairly alarming um that was making the point that during Weimar Germany that was also a period when um the crime rate was low or lower than it had been uh during the war but People were obsessed with crime stories, um, just detective stories, but also true crime stories. It was like a crime, a, a crime mania. And um, the man who wrote that book, whose name just flew out of my head, unfortunately, uh, he he sort of posits that uh, you're in this period when things feel economically politically, socially out of control, like they're, you, you don't know where you're going to end up. Um, and so these stories, which have a, a kind of neat narrative to them and a definable bad guy, um, become really addictive because people are afraid and they need they need narratives that speak to that fear and to that anxiety. But they're also using them to look away from from what's really frightening. And I think there are some alarming parallels to to our current time in that historical account. We're coming to the the end of our time, and I have to ask you so you stared into the abyss (laughs) (laughs) i've heard that the abyss comes to stare back or that you become a darkness yourself what did writing this book do to you you know it, it wasn't until writing that last section about Lindsay, the young woman who planned the mass shooting um it didn't really affect me until then, and I, I think because I was really trying hard to steep myself in in the statistics and think about how statistically safe I was, um, and to remind myself of what what crime really looks like, how different it is from from those depictions on TV. But there was something about being inside her story. Um, she ended up meeting online a young man who who was also interested in Columbine and. And they chatted for a few weeks and and ultimately planned this massacre together. And um, and I read all of their chats. It's you know over it's like a couple thousand pages, I think. Um, and there was something about being inside their heads. This this dialogue of um, just total alienation and the desire to inflict violence on strangers that started making me really paranoid. And I could feel it in myself when I was out in the world. I tend to be the kind of person who chats in the in line at the grocery store with, you know, whoever's next to me. Just I'm a curious, open person. And I could feel myself closing down a little bit and, and just my default mode being a little bit more suspicious and a little more afraid and a little bit more shut down. And then people respond to that mode in you and and they're a little strange to you and then I was just going out of my house less and less and spending more time online and I realized in this funny way that I was I was replicating um 
what had happened to Lindsay and James, like their their isolation and their withdrawal into this world. And um, I really, I really didn't like it in myself feeling it, um, feeling that disconnection, I guess, from from community, from humanity. Um, but I saw how easy it, it was for it to come up. What did you do? <laughs> well, this is not a practical solution, maybe, <laughs> okay. but I, it was a, a very fortunate that I live in this funny, creative, small town. And uh, a theater director came to town and he was like, I'm going to put on a musical and it's going to be outdoors and we're going to have two weeks to rehearse. And he cast me in it. And so then I had these two weeks where I was like, by day I was writing about alienated, angry teenagers. And then by night I was singing these songs outside with my friends, working, collaborating on this project together, being creative in a community, making something, we're just dedicating our, our time to something just for pure delight of our of our friends and family. Um, and, and that was such a, I was so grateful that that timing worked out because it uh, reconnected me with me, all those parts of myself that I had been losing, t- losing touch with. Um, so yeah, maybe everybody just needs to be in a musical. I was going to say, you, you said you can't, <laughs> can't make that recommendation. I totally think that you should make that as a recommendation. That's like, you know, <laughs> let's put on a show. I think that would Community be a wonderful musical theater. Yeah, I think I think musical theater is a response to um, despair and alienation. I, you know, I don't see, uh, you know, one million Gilbert and Sullivan fans can't be wrong. So, <laughs> very true. And I can't even sing, and it was still great. I don't know if it was great to listen to me, but it was great for me to do it. So it could be anybody. I think that's a wonderful place for us to close. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you so much. I really love your podcast, so it was a real treat. And that is it for the show. We are, as I think I've mentioned, putting together some new ideas for show merchandise. I have many terrible ideas that will probably go nowhere. So if you have any good ones, please send them to withfriendslikepod at gmail.com. And now... Go sing something. <laughs>